the invasion of England by the great heathen army. Because there was more than one reason for it to happen. For starters, at least three of the leading figures of the army had a personal reason to lead the invasion. Ivar the Boneless, Uba, and Vitzirk all wanted to avenge the death of their father, Ragnar Lodbrok. Bjorn Ironside and Sigurd Snake in the Eye are mentioned as having taken part in the army, according to the Icelandic sagas, but the English sources make no mention of them. They were likely there to help fight, but took no strategic role. But it wasn't just the sons of Ragnar who wished to invade England. Two other Viking chieftains not part of the Lodbrok family took part in the invasion. Guthrum and Bagchik. Their reasons were more opportunistic and pragmatic. Now, before I go any further, I want to clarify a couple of terms that I might use interchangeably. Things like Viking, Dane, Norse, Nordic, Scandinavian. These are all kind of interchangeable terms for uh, peoples from that same kind of region the countries of Denmark, Norway, and Scandinavia. The Saxons generally just used the term Dane to describe all of the people there, or Viking, which was the profession, the raiders who went about and uh, obviously attacked and uh, stole the goods from unsuspecting villages. So these, these terms tend to get used interchangeably. So if need be, I will clarify, but just as a heads up. So a quick refresher. From last episode, remember when Ragnar Lodbrok raided Paris? Paris at that time was under West Francia, one of the three divided kingdoms after the death of Charlemagne. After the Paris raid, the three kingdoms grew closer and formed the Carolingian Empire which the territory of this would comprise modern-day France, northern Italy, and part of Germany. And as a result, the defenses of this new empire were more cohesive and sturdy, which made raiding a little bit more difficult for the Vikings. England, however, things were not so solidified. The kingdoms of Northumbria, Wessex, East Anglia and Mercia, that all made up England, were all divided and fighting amongst themselves. So what better time to rally a large army and pick off the kingdoms one by one? What's the old saying, united we stand, divided we fall? Well, the English kingdoms were certainly divided. 
the invading Viking army would be composed of numerous groups from Norway, Sweden, Denmark, Scandinavia, a settlement in Ireland, and raiding parties that were already present in England. And it wouldn't take long for the army to arrive thanks to an advantage that the Nordic countries enjoyed during this time. Their ships. Since the fall of the Roman Empire, the dominant sea power was centered mainly in the Aegean Sea and the Middle East with the Byzantines, leaving the rest of the Mediterranean and the northern seas of Europe ready for a new ship to dominate the water. The Viking longship would fill this role. Their ships were continuously iterated and improved on over the course of their history. For starters, they were what is called clinker-built, which is a method of overlapping and nailing together planks of oak, and they were filled with wool and other animal hair, making them a much more watertight ship. The longship was also double-ended, meaning that there was no front or back side to it, and this made reversing the boat a lot easier as opposed to turning, you know, 180 degrees to then go the other uh, direction. It could reach a speed of 17 knots, which is fairly impressive for this age. The ships could endure the open seas or shallow rivers, and they were light enough to be carried by the crews, making them easier to take out of the water, walk around blockades, and just slide the boats down, uh, just slide the boats down further or upstream. The ships could endure the open seas or shallow rivers and were light enough to be carried by the crews, making them easier to take out of the water, walk around blockades, and slide the boats further down or up a river. Pretty impressive, right? Now imagine a fleet of over 100 of these arriving at your doorstep, full of people whose business is fighting and they are here because you killed one of their heroes, and because you're busy quarreling with your neighbors, and they've been such a problem for you in the past that you would often have to pay them to leave. But now they're not here to raid, but to invade. In 865, the army would arrive at Kent, a small island just off the east coast of England, the army started with the Kingdom of East Anglia, the weakest of the four kingdoms, who quickly folded and sought peace with the Vikings, offering to let them winter there and provide horses for them when they moved on. After wintering in East Anglia, the army moved on to Northumbria, the home of King Ayla. King Ayla, if you recall, is the one responsible for the death of Ragnar Lodbrok, the great hero of the Vikings and whose sons were leading said army to avenge him. King Ayla, along with his brother Osbert, led the Northumbrian army to York. The Vikings feigned retreat from the Northumbrians, causing Ayla and Osbert to pursue. This was a trap. Ayla had given chase and found himself surrounded by the rest of the army lying hidden in wait. Now here's where differentiating sources start to come into play. 
Anglo-Saxon sources claim that King Ayla and Osbert were killed basically on the spot during this engagement, just on the battlefield. Norse sources have a different claim in regards to King Ayla. According to the Patir of Rognarsonum, Ivar the Boneless had captured King Ayla. Ivar and his brothers having a bit of a personal vendetta against him, for obvious reasons, felt that death on the battlefield was too merciful a death for the man who killed their father. You remember he dropped Ragnar into a pit of snakes. The brothers agreed that the only suitable punishment for King Ayla would be the ritual blood eagle. The Vikings had a variety of punishments depending on the severity of the crime. In the case of the Blood Eagle, this was a rare punishment, reserved for the most extreme cases. Obviously, the Vikings considered this to be an extreme case, since Ayla had killed such a folk hero. It's such that historians debate whether or not the punishment ever actually happened, and is a misinterpretation or mistranslation. So what happens in the Blood Eagle? To start with, the victim's hands and legs are outstretched and bound to prevent escape or movement. The one administering the punishment would then take an axe and hack at the tailbone and up to the rib cage and would individually separate every rib from the backbone. The idea is that the victim is supposed to be alive during this whole process. And to make matters worse for the victim, once their insides were exposed, salt was applied to the open wound to enhance the pain. The ribs were spread out from the back, which gave the punisher easy access to the internal organs such as the lungs, and would rip them out. The victim was then put on display with their skin on their back spread out so that it looked like they had a pair of wings, hence the name Blood Eagle. The Fatira Fragnar Sunum has a passage that translates to this quote, They caused the Bloody Eagle to be carved on the back of Ela, and they cut away all of the ribs from the spine, and then they ripped out the lungs. End quote. It's pretty straightforward. A poem by Sigvaktir goes like this, quote, Ok elubak atlen insat, Ivar ara yorvi skorit. I'm sure my pronunciation was horrible, so give me a little grace here. The literal one-to-one -one translation reads this as, quote, And Ayla's back, at had the one who dwelt, Ivar with eagle york cut. It may be meant that it's meant to be understood as this, quote, And Ivar, the one who dwelt at York, had Ayla's back cut with an eagle. Historian Saxo Grammaticus gives the credit of the blood eagle to Bjorn Ironside and Sigurd's snake in the eye, saying, quote, This they did at the appointed time, and when they had captured him, they ordered the figure of an eagle to be cut in his back, rejoicing to crush their most ruthless foe by marking him with the cruelest of birds. Not satisfied with impressing a wound on him, they salted the mangled flesh. 
end quote. Another account goes that before the execution of Ayla began, he begged for his life, offering to pay as much gold and silver as they wanted, even if it took him the rest of his life, to which Ivar is supposed to have said, quote, My father was worth more than gold and silver. That is not the price you must pay. End quote. It's almost kind of a Cain and Abel situation here of revenge killings just forever continuing. The sons of Ragnar would kill Ayla for killing their father, but Ayla would argue that he killed Ragnar for raiding and killing his people, to which Ragnar could have argued that maybe if the English Saxons would have let them build settlements and not kill the Norse people trying to live there, you see how the arguments can keep going back on opposite sides? The authors of a 2022 study concluded that the ritual execution, as described, was not inconsistent either with physiology or the tools available within the kind of sociocultural context of that era. They further concluded that were performed in the most extreme versions depicted in the sagas, and the subject of the torture still lived at that point, death would have followed the severing of the ribs from the spine within seconds due to either exsanguination, which is loss of blood, or asphyxiation. So whether or not Ayla actually succumbed to the blood eel is still up for a debate. But what is certain is that he was killed by a group led by Ivar and the other sons of Ragnar at the city of York. Now with Ayla gone, the Vikings installed a puppet ruler, Egbert, to rule with the interest of the Danes. That's two kingdoms down and two to go, Mercia and Wessex. The great heathen army moved to face Mercia next. Mercia initially tried to face the army on its own and would lose the city of Nottingham for its efforts. The King of Mercia requested the help of King Ethelred of Wessex to fend off the Viking army and reclaim Saxon lands, since this was becoming a bit of a common cause for the Saxons. Only took two kingdoms to be knocked off for the rest of them to realize, oh, maybe we should band together. Ethelred agreed and sent an army to aid the Mercians. The combined Saxon army laid siege to the recently Viking-occupied city of Nottingham, and it was a stalemate. The Mercians had no choice but to resort to an old tactic that had worked in the past, paying them off. And the Vikings got paid, rather handsomely, and they returned to York. You've got to imagine that all of this for the Danes, for the, for the great army that's showing up here, they probably feel like they're riding pretty high on what's going on here. Parties and feasts where everyone's getting drunk, singing, and retelling their victories were probably a good time if you were a Dane. You and your people have successfully held on to the lands that you've just conquered for a few years. The enemy can't beat you. They're paying you. And more of your people are showing up from your homeland to keep bolstering the ranks. The great army actually initially started smaller than the force that Ragnar took to Paris. The low estimates put the army arriving in England actually at only about a thousand. Remember, that's a low-end estimate. But over the course of time in England, 
their numbers would swell to more than five times that size. That's the size of a Roman legion. Which putting together a force that size wasn't exactly as easy as it was during the days of the Roman Empire, which had the greatest logistics the world had ever seen up to that point to be able to support numerous legions. That type of logistics would not be reproduced until the days of Napoleon. So during this time, 5,000 Viking warriors is a lot of people to bring on an enemy. It's a massive force for the Middle Ages. So the Vikings returned to Northern England and spent a year in York, and then they moved to the market town of Thetford in East Anglia the following year. So not really a whole lot of fighting happened in these two years, like maybe some skirmishes here and there, some uh, raiding small towns, you know, just some side stuff, but no major action took place. Now, when they went back to East Anglia, King Edmund, who never actually signed any deal with the Danes, remember he just kind of let them in and was like, just leave us alone, you can winter here, we'll even give you some horses, you know, just go on your way. He decides to take that moment to attack the Danes while they were settled in Thetford. Not a lot of detail is available as to how this encounter went, other than Edmund was defeated. Even less detailed than Ayla, Edmund is killed here. But whether or not it's in battle, or that he was captured, tortured, and killed, it's not really certain. It's said that the Vikings tried to force him to renounce Christ, which he refused, which led to his sanctification as Saint Edmund the Martyr. His death would mark the territory of East Anglia becoming a hub of Scandinavian culture in England, along with Northumbria for the next two centuries. By 871, the great army had grown enough that the Vikings felt confident enough to split and head in separate directions. One group, led by Ivar, took his forces into Scotland, to the area known as Altklut. Witzerk and Bagcek went south to face Wessex, and Uba stayed in York. Ivar coordinated with another Viking king, Olaf the White, and his push north. Ivar would march his forces while Olaf took his and sailed to the land on the west coast. The two forces trapped the Scots in a four-month siege, starving them into surrender. Ivar and Olaf took everything of monetary value, but as far as taking supplies, this four-month siege had dried up the only working well that Altklut had. So there wasn't exactly much food or water to be taken from here. Meanwhile, Witzerk and Bagcek moved to invade Wessex, the territory of King Ethelred. The first major confrontation would take place in the Battle of Ashdown. The actual location of Ashdown isn't really clear, but it's apparently near Berkshire. The Vikings arrived first at the battleground and deployed along the top of the ridge, giving them the advantage. They divided their forces into two contingents, two groups. One group under their kings, Witzerk and Bagchik, and the other under their earls. When the West Saxons heard this from their scouts, they decided to copy the formation, with Ethelred facing the kings and Alfred, Ethelred's brother, facing the earls. The king then retired, after some initial fighting, to his tent to listen to mass, while Alfred led his forces to the battlefield. 
to me, Alfred was showing a bit more of what you might call pragmatic Christianity here by staying to deal with the Vikings who are right there attacking. Alfred, I like to think, probably would have thought that God would understand him not praying to him at that particular moment because he had to defend his country from an outside force that didn't even believe in Christianity. Whereas Ethelred was a little bit more strict in his faith and that didn't matter what he was doing. When it was time to go to Mass, it was time to go to Mass. Both sides formed their forces into shield walls. Ethelred wouldn't cut short his devotions, and Alfred risked being outflanked with him gone and being overwhelmed by the whole Danish army. He decided to do a risky attack and lead his men charging uphill, which is itself a risky move. The battle then, interestingly enough, ranged around a small thorn tree. And finally, the West Saxons were actually victorious. Alfred's forces would chase the Vikings until nightfall, cutting them down. One of the Viking kings, Bagchek, was actually killed here. But it was a costly victory for the Saxons in terms of the numbers of men lost. Though you kind of get the sense that it didn't have to be as bad if Ethelred had kept his forces in the fight and not backed out. Not long after Ashdown... Ivar the Boneless would rejoin the group and a succession of Viking victories would occur. The battles of Reading, yes, like reading a book, that's how it's spelled and pronounced, Basing and Meriton, all probably made up for that one little setback at Ashdown. To make matters worse for the Saxons, at least from a morale perspective initially, King Ethelred would die three months after the Battle of Ashdown, and Alfred would be crowned king. Now, while, yes, Alfred had been proving himself as a little bit more of a pragmatic leader, a transition in leadership while you're at war and on the defensive against an enemy who excels at fighting, was probably a bit stressful for the Saxon people. A little bit of uncertainty. How well is Alfred going to do? Is he going to lead well enough? Can he actually stop these people? Can he manage to reclaim any of the land that we've lost? Are we going to suffer the same fate as Northumbria and East Anglia? You know, those sort of questions were probably popping up into the local, into the local Wessex citizen. He takes the crown in 871. He and the Mercian king Burgrid pay off the Vikings. But Alfred's going to take advantage of this payment to buy himself some time instead of hoping that the problem just goes away. He's going to try to build up his forces and see if he can't push back. Now, to use the analogy of a deck of cards, the hands that would be dealt to both sides over the next few years, looking at the Viking side of things in 873, Ivar the Boneless would die of an unknown disease. Sigurd Snake in the Eye would return to Denmark to rule as king. Bjorn Ironside had left altogether to raid other countries and explore the Mediterranean. And Vitzirk would die in 877. In 878, shortly before the Battle of Eddington, which is a big decisive battle, Uba would be killed at a place called Chinwit. So the Sons of Ragnar have all been removed from the board, so to speak. 
This left only the Viking King Guthrum the Old to lead the great army. That's the hand that was dealt to the Vikings. But what about the hand that's been dealt to the other side, the Saxons? By 874, the Vikings had conquered Mercia and installed another puppet king, a man named Cheowulf, once again ruling with their interests, leaving only Wessex. In the territories of Mercia, East Anglia, and Northumbria, the Vikings had been setting up communities. They were letting everyone know that they were here to stay. The Dane Law had been set up. The Dane Law was simply laws used back in the homes of the countries of the Vikings, but being enforced in England in what were to be considered permanent settlements. It started off as a term for just the law being enforced, but over the next century, the word Dane Law also became synonymous with the region inhabited by the Danes. And at the start of 878, the Danes made a sudden attack on the town of Chippenham, a royal stronghold in which Alfred had been staying over Christmas, and most of the people had been killed there except for King Alfred, and he with a small group made their way through the woods and into a swamp, and after Easter made a fort in the marshes of Somerset, and from that fort kept fighting against the Vikings. So Alfred's on the run a little bit here. He's putting up the last bit of resistance for the Saxon kingdoms. It's the last thread. On a side but related note, while Alfred's on the run, hiding in the, in the wilderness, in the marshes, there's an odd legend, odd to me at least, that they made a point of remembering this, of King Alfred, when he first fled to the marshes. A peasant woman had granted him shelter and was, a, was completely unaware of who he was, thought that maybe he was just some traveler. She let him stay there. And while she left to tend to some other chores, she asked him to watch some wheat cakes which she had left cooking on the fire. Alfred was so worried about what might become of his kingdom that he wasn't paying attention, and the cakes burned, which prompted the peasant woman to scold him. So the legend goes. I'm guessing the moral of this little legend is to not let the things you can't control distract you from the things you can. By the seventh week after Easter, so this puts it somewhere between May 4th through 10th, of the year 878, Alfred rode to King Eckbert's stone east of Selwood, where he was met by all the people of Somerset and of Wiltshire and of part of Hampshire, which is on the side of the sea, uh, it's west of Southampton Water, and they were all extremely happy to see him. His emergence from the marshes was part of kind of a carefully planned offensive entailing assembling as much men as he could from just three shires. But this meant that despite hiding in the marshes, he had managed to retain the loyalty of all the eldermen and the 
the Thanes, and the royal Reeves, who were charged with levying and leading the forces. And it was also impressive that they managed to maintain their positions of authority in these localities and were able to answer his summons. This kind of suggests that Alfred had some scouts that were out and about, which would make sense. But the force that Alfred gathered from these three shires was still pretty small, and they really couldn't hope to retake any of the towns from the Danes who had in previous battles proved themselves pretty good at defending fortified positions. So he would move south, and taking a page from their playbook, would build a fortress of his own. So this little stalemate of two sides hiding in their own fortresses, saying, you come out, no, you come out, would bring both forces outside of their respective forts and meet each other on the field, which Alfred viewed as his best shot. It was still a risky move, considering who he's fighting, a group of people who love to fight. But it's better to fight these people out in the open than them in a well-fortified position. Saxon accounts, which are the only accounts we really have to go by, and are obviously going to be a bit favorable to Alfred in this description when the fight actually takes place, says this, quote, Fighting ferociously, forming a dense shield wall against the whole army of the pagans, and striving long and bravely, at last Alfred gained the victory. He overthrew the pagans with great slaughter, and smiting the fugitives, he pursued them as far as the fortress. Alfred pulls off an amazing victory here. For a guy who's just been hiding in the swamps for a couple of months, manages to turn things around, and actually beats the Vikings and makes them retreat back to their fortress. But he follows up on this. After they had holed up in the fort, Alfred took the time to remove all the food that the Danes might be able to capture from the surrounding area. And after two weeks, the Danes were already starving and sued for peace, giving Alfred preliminary hostages and oaths that they would leave his kingdom immediately. This was the usual tactic. But Alfred would demand another peace to this agreement. Guthrum, the leader, would have to be baptized. The main difference between this agreement and the agreements prior was that Alfred had not just stopped the Vikings, but had actually decisively defeated them, therefore making it more likely that the Vikings would keep to the terms of the treaty. Now, the primary reason for Alfred's victory was probably the relative size of the two armies. While, yes, he had only managed to summon up a small force from three shires, the Vikings, on the other hand, they had they'd suffered their own losses. Guthrum had lost the support of the other Danish lords. The sons of Ragnar were all dead. Danish forces had begun settling on the land in the Danelaw before Guthrum attacked Wessex, so large portions of fighters weren't fighting anymore. And in the prior year, a fleet of 120 ships were lost in a storm. So he really didn't have 
as big an army as he could have. Three weeks after Alfred had defeated Guthrum at Eddington, Guthrum was baptized in Somerset with Alfred as his sponsor. Now, it's possible this was a forced conversion and is an attempt by Alfred to kind of lock Guthrum into a Christian code of ethics, hoping it would ensure that the Danes' compliance would be a bit more secure to any treaties that they would agree to. The converted Guthrum would take on the baptismal name of Athelstan. Under the terms of this new treaty, the converted Guthrum was required to leave Wessex and return to East Anglia. By 879, the Viking army had left Chippenham and made its way to the Kingdom of Mercia and remained there for a year. The following year, the army went to East Anglia, where it settled. By 886, the Treaty of Althred and Guthrum defined the boundaries of their two kingdoms. The Kingdom of Mercia was divided up with part going to Alfred's Wessex and the other part going to Guthrum's East Anglia. The agreement also defined the social classes of the Danish East Anglia and their equivalents in Wessex. It tried to provide kind of a framework that would minimize conflict and regulate trade and commerce between the two peoples. It's not clear how seriously Guthrum took to his uh, conversion to Christianity, but he was the first of the Danish rulers of the English kingdoms to mint coins the same way Alfred did. And he wouldn't print Guthrum on these coins, he would print Athelstan. So we're in a sort of less heated period here now. Raids would continue throughout England from the Vikings, but on a much smaller scale. In the 950s, the English would invade the Danelaw, but permitted the Jarls who were governing there to keep their lands as long as they submitted to English terms. So no conflict of the scale of the great heathen army would occur again in England until more than a hundred years later. The great heathen army has quite an interesting legacy. For starters, what it did for the Christians was it showed them that they needed to update, let's just say, their negotiation tactics with foes. You can't just pay off an enemy that doesn't keep them away forever, they just keep coming back. So you have to put yourself in a position where you make the terms and make them so that your enemy can't refuse them. Another one of those seeds I mentioned in the Ragnar episode. But to the Vikings' credit, because after all, this is coverage of the Viking history and their culture and seeing what we can learn from them. They showed what a united force with a common cause could achieve in a relatively short amount of time. In 13 years, they toppled three kingdoms and established long-term settlements. All because opportunity was present and they had a cultural cause and a fallen hero that needed to be avenged. So imagine taking that unity and motivation. If you can find a cause or open people's eyes to an opportunity and unite them, what you could accomplish. So what's another piece of wisdom to bring from the Vikings to the present? There's a quote from Orvar Ode's saga that applies to both the great heathen army and to us today. It goes like this, quote, Gold 
is little comfort for the kinsman dead. End quote. Ragnar's sons would rather have had their father alive than all the gold in the world. And we too should care more about our family and friends than our material possessions. Thanks for listening. Oh,